completely clear to everyone that nobody has a, a, a claim before God of being righteous. Just yesterday, I was uh, talking to Pastor Mike, and he was um, he was telling me about his son, who has, is in his first year of the town of Poughkeepsie Police Department, and he was talking about um, during his training, when he's going through the academy, how um, they would have detectives, um, people that have been on the force for a long time, that would come in and teach the young cadets how to interrogate uh, um, people and how to build a case against them. And so he was watching hours and hours of video footage of real-life interrogations where people who were, um, you, you know, arrested for a particular crime um, and then interrogated and then tried and found guilty. And then they showed the interrogation methods of how the detectives would go about um, uh, building the case. And, and in the midst of the discussion, as he was explaining, I said, well, why do they have to do that? Because if they already have the evidence and they already uh, you know, are going to be able to prosecute them, why do they do that? And he said that the reason why they do that is so that they can build the strongest case possible against this person because the lawyers are so good at finding loopholes and reasons why uh, they, they can get off you know, in the whole thing. And so Paul kind of employs that same technique here with all of humanity, and he's going to build the case that there is none righteous, no, not one. So in chapter 1, the segment that we looked at last week, Paul talks to them about the godless heathen, the person who has no moral uh, desire or claim or any other responsibility to anybody. They just do what they want. And that's the easiest case to make because, uh, you know, they just sin openly and, and, you know, and they're guilty. But now what he does is he takes it to the next level and in the first 16 verses of chapter 2, he's going to talk about what we would call the moralist or the religious person, uh, the person that has a standard or um, in some way ha has a line design somewhere in their life that this is right and this is wrong. And in their own mind, as long as they stay on the righteous side of that line, then they're okay with God. And so that's who Paul is going to go after now in the beginning of chapter 2. And that's the hardest person to convince of their guilt because of, of the, the self-righteous mindset that they have. You know, the person that thinks that they're um, righteous. And so Paul talks to them and we begin then in chapter 2 and he says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, this is the second section of men, Whosoever you are that judges, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judges, and the idea is you judge someone else for their behavior, you do the same things. And so he begins with this word, therefore. And we all know that whenever you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, it is a connective word that connects the thing that was previously said to the thing that is now being said. So he's saying, therefore, in this whole thing. And the therefore, what it does is it connects the judgment of God to the next segment. So he began the last segment by talking about the wrath of God. And he finished the last segment in verse 32 by saying that those people know the judgment of God, that it's coming, that they're aware of the judgment of God, and that the wrath and judgment of God is something that is innately placed inside every human being.
And so the therefore connects this concept of the judgment of God, and now he connects that judgment to a second group of people, and that group of people is the moralist, and the moralist is identified by the fact that they judge other people. And that is just the the baseline definition of this moralist religious person is that they have created their own standard. They have said, this is right and this is wrong. And they've placed themselves on the right side of that spectrum, but the terms or the qualifications of that placing is based upon the behavior that they've seen in someone else. And so you can't be a moralist without judging. And so judging is the mark of the moralist. And he says that the moralist is inexcusable because when they judge, they're guilty of doing the same thing. Now, an interesting thing about someone who judges or condemns another person's action is that in the very act of judging someone else, they are admitting that they know an action is wrong. Now, just think about that for just a minute. If I, if I look at you and I say that what you're doing is wrong, and therefore I'm not going to do that because what you're doing is wrong, I have admitted knowledge of the fact that what you're doing is wrong. And therefore, if I offend against that knowledge, I have sinned because I've admitted that I know that it's wrong. And so you're condemned, he says, you condemn yourself because you that judge, you do the same things. Now, before God, the thing that makes a man or a woman guilty is a singular offense. Meaning that if I know that there's a standard, that this is right and this is wrong, and I live on the right side of that standard 99% of my life, but I live on the wrong side of that standard 1% of my life, then that makes me guilty before God. Because God doesn't measure according to, you know, was he more often on the good? He measures, were you always on the good? And so before God, the standard is perfection. Jesus would say that unless your righteousness, that is the the behavior, your merit, what you've earned, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, then you will in no wise enter the kingdom of God. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most careful in their adherence to keep moral structure, moral behavior. And Jesus said, you've got to be better even than the Pharisees. And he concluded the statement by saying, therefore, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what Jesus did when he spoke those words is he set the bar for acceptable behavior at perfection. Meaning that if I judge you based upon something that you're doing in your life, and I, at any point in my life, have violated the condemnation of that judgment, then I've condemned myself in it because I'm guilty before God of doing the same thing. All he has to do is play the tape of the one or two times in my life that I violated that standard and I become guilty before God in the thing. And so I am inexcusable if I judge someone else because I have admitted to the standard and I myself have broken it. And every single one of us has broken every single command of God in some way uh, or or another, on some level. Now, he goes on in verse 2 to say, he says, but we are sure or certain that the judgment of God, that is when God judges, 
someone for their behavior or for their sin, or God brings someone into condemnation, that we know that his judgment is according to truth. That the judgment of God is according to truth. And so what that means is that with God, there is a standard. He has set the line somewhere. And that when God makes the judgment, it's a perfect judgment because God knows the facts. So his judgment is true because he knows all things against such which commit such things. And then he says in verses 3 and 4, he talks about, or he, what Paul does as the attorney is that he removes excuses. And so the excuses um, in verses 3 and 4, the self-deception that the, that the moralist has, he says, And do you think this, O man, that judges them which do such things and doest the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? The first self-deception that the moralist has is that somehow they're going to get away with it because they know what's right and wrong, and they've compared themselves with someone else. And, and Paul says to them, he says, do you really think that that's the case? Do you really think that one day, O moralist, who think you're right before God, that you've sinned, you're going to stand before God one day, and he's going to let you off on some technicality, or you're going to find some loophole with God, who's perfect and just? He says, no, no. Or, second excuse he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He says in this whole thing that there's absolutely no loophole in this whole thing that you're going to escape, that, that what's happening is that you are mistaking or misplacing God's patience for God's acceptance. Meaning, because God hasn't judged you yet for the behavior or the sin of your own heart, you're thinking that God has accepted that behavior or that he's winking at that behavior in some way. Well, because you're not as bad as, as this person, then God accepts you. And he's saying, no, no, don't make that mistake. This is not acceptance before God. This is the patience of God because his goodness is what brings a person to repentance. God is patient kind, hoping that a person will realize the error of their ways and, and deal with their sin in the right way, the way that God has provided through his son, which we haven't gotten to that yet, uh, and, and then that person would be saved. And so um, his patience and his kindness is not acceptance or weakness. But he says in verse 5, here's the reality of the situation. He says, after thy hardness and impenitent heart... Your heart has become hardened, and you are unrepentant in your heart. Here's what's happening. You are treasuring up unto yourself wrath against or in, in, in face of the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, the reason why God hasn't judged your sin yet or because he seems to have looked the other way, it's not because he accepts it. It's because right now we are in a period of time where God is exercising patience and restraint on the judgment of sin. But what's happening is that you're treasuring up wrath. In other words, by continuing in sin that's undealt with before God, he's not letting it go. But rather, it's all being written down. 
And it's one day the treasure chest of my sinfulness is going to be opened up and I'm going to have to deal with the fact that I've sinned against God and I'm going to answer for every single thing that I've done. I'm treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And here's what he will do. He will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, there's a world of difference between a man's knowledge and a man's actions. And when a man judges another man, he's judging based on knowledge. I know this is right. I know this is wrong. But deeds are actions. And the Bible says that God is going to judge according to a man's deeds, not according to his actions. This is the second time, by the way, already in this chapter, that um, that that he says that the, uh, uses the word according, uh, associated with God's judgment. Back up in verse two, he said that God's judgment is according to truth, meaning that God's going to judge according to what's true, both the standard and the actions, the deeds. Here he says he's going to judge according to deeds, not intentions. It's amazing sometimes how we judge ourselves according to our intentions, and we judge other people according to their deeds. You ever notice that? You know, when we fail in a certain way, we're very merciful to ourselves because of our intentions. Well, yeah, I didn't maybe, you know, I know I was going to help you move, and I really intended to help you move, but one thing kind of happened, and then another thing, and it didn't work out, and I ended up not helping you move, but at least I wanted to. My heart was in the right place, you know, in the whole thing. But if I'm moving and I ask you to help me and you don't show up, then you're just a piece. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just selfish with your time, you know, and the whole thing. And now I'm judging you according to your actions, not according to maybe what your intentions are going to be. But not so with God. God doesn't judge according to our intentions. God judges us according to our deeds and the whole thing. And there's a world of difference between the two things when God looks. And then here, here it is. It's very simple with God. There's no, I, I, you know, you, you know how sometimes you get like a, um, a, a traffic infraction or you get a ticket or there, there's some summons and, uh, and you look at the thing and what you're accused of. And it's like, you know, um, four numbers and then a letter and then a number and then a letter and then two letters and then another number. And that's the crime. You know, it's like a, uh, you know, a 1200 B2 A4 2. You know, and you're like, what in the world is that? And, and then you go into court and like you're accused of parking in front of a fire hydrant in city limits while there was a dog peeing on the fire hydrant. You know, and, and there's like this whole thing and you're like, oh, you know, and that's four points instead of two points and, and this whole thing. It doesn't work that way with God. We're not going to get into heaven and there's this plea deal where it's like, okay, well, let's get it down to this or, you know, the whole thing. There's two things with God and here they are real easy. It says in verse seven, he says to them who by patient continuance in well-doing. Now the word continuance means consistency, perseverance, and constance in, in, uh, uh, in the whole thing. And so if I'm uh, continuing in it, it means that, that it's the definition of my life. By patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. To them will be given eternal life. So, summary, to those that live a perfect life, you will have eternal life. 
On the other side, verse 8, but to them that are contentious, that's rebellious, and do not obey the truth, but rather they obey unrighteousness, to them indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Meaning that every human being, no matter where they're from, what their race, what their place in life, their gifts or talents, their uh, level of education, God is not a respecter of persons, and everyone stands in one of two categories. You're either righteous because of patient continuance and well-doing and seeking for glory, honor, and immortality because you've been perfect, or you have obeyed unrighteousness, disobedience, and you're a child and an object of God's judgment, indignation, and wrath. That's it. It's one or the other, and the standard is perfection. So if you've been perfect then you stand on the side of God's righteousness and you can have eternal life. But if you've sinned in some way at any point in your life, then you're on the other side of that equation. Now, remember, the context of this is the person that's apart from Christ. You know, and we, we must remember the context. Paul is not talking to believers here. He's talking to unbelievers, moralist people, and he's saying that there's no respect of persons. They're guilty. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now, this is an important verse, and it's one that you want to highlight and remember, because this is the answer to the question that people raise, and they'll say, what about the guy who never heard the gospel? What about the tribe somewhere in somewhere that never had a missionary sent to them, that never read a Bible, that never heard the name of Jesus their whole life, and then they die? What's God going to do with them? How is he going to judge that person? Well, here's the answer. He says, for as many as have sinned without the law, they shall also perish without the law. Meaning they're not going to be judged the same way God judges someone who has heard the gospel or has had a Bible or church experience or that heard the, the law, the Ten Commandments, and knew uh, in their mind what was right from wrong. You say, well, then how is God going to judge them? He's going to judge them fairly according to what they did know. Now, in a couple of verses, he's going to talk again about conscience. He's going to say, uh, in verse 14, he's going to say, For when the Gentiles, speaking of, you know, these people, which don't have the law, when they do by nature the things that are contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. In other words, the light that they have, based upon what their conscience is telling them is right and wrong, and the evidence that they see in creation and the things that are outside, God is going to judge them fairly according to those standards. So God will be fair in his judgment of those standards. A conscience is an amazing thing. Because there's not a, a, a human being alive on the planet that lives according to the dictates of their conscience. Not one. 
Every single one of us violates, but yet every one of us has a conscience. I remember being um, a young man, probably 10 years old, and uh, where I grew up in, in the suburbs of Rochester, it was a, a farm town that was slowly being developed, um, you know, and, and Kodak was, was big, Xerox was big, Bausch & Lam was big in Rochester, and so there, it was kind of a growing place, and so there was always um, suburbs and neighborhoods being developed and built out and this thing, and we lived on kind of one of those roads that had been there for 100 years, but right behind us, there was this um, subdivision it was being constructed. And so we would go back there as kids and we'd ride our bikes on these, um, you know, uh, bulldozed roads that were just still dirt and we'd play in the houses that they were built in, building and all this. And I remember the, this particular day I was with a, a, a bunch of guys and there was this little stream that um, was being turned into a culvert and there was these giant bullfrogs that were... Um, there. I mean, they were just massive. I'd never seen frogs so big. And these guys that, that were there, they were catching these frogs and then they were stabbing them with pocket knives. And, and you know, here I am, I'm just a 10-year-old and I saw that happen and there was something inside that I just knew that was wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know why, you know, it didn't seem intellectually like, you know, okay, it's just a frog. You know, these things get run over by cars all the time, you know, and the whole thing. But when they, when they handed me the knife and said, here, you do one. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, I just, I was shaking because there was a conscience. There was something inside of me that said, this is wrong. Even though no one ever said to me, hey, don't take a pocket knife and stab a bullfrog. <laughs> you know, the, the, the work of the law was written in my heart. And what that tells us about the human conscience is that the human conscience has its origin in a higher place than within man himself. I did not create my own conscience because I recognize that it is higher than me. There's a, a song that was written. Um, I couldn't find the exact lyrics, um, but I, I believe it was written by Madonna. She's a real role model and icon of our generation and Certainly one that we want to learn a lot from, but um, there, there's some lyrics uh, that she had written in one of her songs, and she said, turn off your consciousness, not conscious, but consciousness. And, and it's an amazing thing that those words actually exist, because the suggestion of, of those words um, imply that in order for me to be able to do the other things that she's implying that I should do in that song, I have to turn off my conscience in order to do it. What an amazing admission of guilt that is. You know, for someone to write those words down and then have to stand before God Almighty and to know right there, right out, they're guilty. They're just guilty because they, they recognize the conscience as being an authority higher than humanity. Interesting lady. Um, she, for a while took her daughter to England because she wanted to raise her daughter in England because she didn't want her to be exposed to the cultural rot in the United States of America. You know, talk about hypocrisy, right? She was asked by the same interviewer um, who was talking to her about these things if she would allow her daughter to listen to her music, and she said, oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean, talk about being self-condemned. You know, and the... <laughs> what's that? You know... Um, but he says that as many as have sinned without law will perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And so we will be judged according to the light that we've received. So for you and I, 
who have heard the gospel, who know who Jesus is, who understand the, the, the standard and the righteousness of God, we are held accountable according to that standard. Jesus said something very interesting uh, in the middle of his public ministry. He uh, laid a condemnation. He said, woe unto you, um, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, woe unto you, Capernaum. And then he said these words. He said, if the works that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. Therefore, your condemnation will be greater than theirs. Now, you think about the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah, what they did and what God did in response to what they did. You think that's a severe condemnation. That's a strict judgment. I mean, he smoked that city. But God looked at a city in Israel, a city wherein Jesus had conducted ministry, and he said that the judgment of that city is going to be even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, and they weren't guilty of the same sins. But what they were guilty of is sinning against greater light. Sodom had no Bible. Sodom had no prophet. They had Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. They had the very Son of God himself come in and, and, and preach to them. And so he held them to a higher standard than he did the one who didn't know. So God will be fair in his judgment. Those without law and those that have law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts Meanwhile, either accusing or else excusing one another. And then verse 16, in the day, and the day is coming, when God shall judge, there's that word again, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to uh, my gospel, Paul says. And so essentially, there are four things that God is going to use to judge the moralist or to try the moralist, or bring them uh, into their um, sentencing. Number one is their knowledge. Their knowledge is based upon the fact that they're judging. They know it's wrong. Second of all, their deeds, what they did. Did they obey what they knew was right, or did they sin against what was right? Number three, he's going to judge them according to their conscience. Did they sin against the God-given conscience that he had given to them? And then uh, number four, the fourth standard of God's judgment of the heathen, he tells us in verse 16 that they're going to be judged by Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be judged by Jesus Christ? It doesn't just simply mean they're going to stand before him, and they are going to stand before him. But what it means is that they're going to be judged according to the standard that was set by Jesus. I remember one time when I was uh, working in the trades, I was setting a door. And in setting this door, I'm using a level, and it's very essential when you're setting a door that your uh, door frame, um, your, your uprights be uh, plumb and your uh, crossbeam be level. You know? And so I'm using this level, and um, you know, I, I put it on, and I put the shims, and I put the screws, I put the, you know, nailed, put the whole thing in, and then the door didn't work right. You know, and so then I go and I put the level back on it, and the level shows that it's out. And oh, so you undo everything, and you, you do it again. You set it level, hang the door, and it it's out. Put the level on it, and it's not showing level. 
And, and so I, I said, this thing is killing me. I, this door, this is usually pretty easy, but this thing is killing me. And so I grabbed one of the other guys and he looked at me and he laughed and he says, that level's no good. <laughs> and he showed me, he put it on one way and it was perfect. He put it the other way and the thing was crooked. You know? And then he said, let me show you. And he went over to the gang box and he got another level. And when he put the two levels right next to each other, the one level was slightly bowed. Now, to the naked eye, you could never see that. You could never see that that level was, was off at all. You could never tell. It looked like every other level. But when you put it next to a true level, it revealed the flaws that were in that level. And what Paul is saying here is that, listen, you moralists who think that you're going to get into heaven based on the fact that you're better than somebody else or you're not as bad as that guy, What's going to happen is that one day God is going to align your life next to the straightest level that has ever existed in all of existence, and that is the perfection of Jesus Christ. And how do you measure up then? <laughs> and he says that what's going to be revealed in that day is not the actions only and the deeds that you did, but even the very secrets of your heart are going to be exposed before him. Now, I can tell you here this morning, I do not want the secrets of my heart exposed before all of heaven and all of earth. And I wonder if you do either. <laughs> I know that I don't. And so for me, if there is any way that I could avoid having that information portrayed to all of heaven and earth, I want to know what that way is. <laughs> and that is exactly where Paul is going with all of this. But before going there, he must show us that we are absolutely in need of it. And so Paul here condemns the moralist hypocrite who thinks that because they're better than someone else, God is going to accept their person on that merit. Absolutely not true. The standard is perfection, and unless you've met it, you will be absolutely held guilty. And so then he moves on to the third group in verse 17, and the third group now is the Jew. And he says, behold, you are called a Jew, and you rest in the law. And you make your boast of God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, and has a form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. And so what he gives us here in verses 17 through 20 is he gives to us the resume of the typical Jewish person. Now, the Jewish person, in contrast to the religious person that he talked about in the first half of the chapter, the Jewish person is not basing their righteousness on being better than someone else, judging, but rather their false confidence is in their identity. Because I am a Jew, the seed of Abraham, because I am a part of God's chosen people, therefore I get a pass. And, and, and you say, well, what's the basis of your pass? And Paul says it's these 13 things. You're called a Jew. You rest in the law. You make your boast of God. You know his will. You approve what's excellent. You're taught. You're confident. You're a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, and you have a form of knowledge in the truth of the law. Thirteen things that the Jew would say, these things make me righteous before God. Now Paul's going to say, oh yeah? <laughs> Verse 21. 
You therefore, which teach another, teachest thou not thyself? You that preaches that a man should not steal, do you steal? You that say a man should not commit adultery, another of the Ten Commandments, do you commit adultery? You that abhorrest idols, idolatry, another of the Ten Commandments, do you commit sacrilege? Have you broken that commandment? You that make your boast of the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? So he calls them to the witness stand and he says, I don't care if you're the seed of Abraham and I don't care if you know God's law and God's commandments and his will and I don't care if you teach God's law and God's commandments in this whole thing and you're approved of all men for it. I've got one question for you, O Jewish person. Do you keep the law to the standard that you teach it to others? The prosecution rests. <laughs> and, and then he sits down. I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of uh, Ray Comfort's evangelistic work that he's done, where he will um, go into a university or a festival or a crowd somewhere, and he'll set up a, a little booth, and he'll just put a sign up in front of it uh, that says, come and take the good test. And, and people will come up and say, what's the good test? And he'll say, well, it's just a, a test to see whether or not you're a good person. You want to try it? Oh, yeah, I want to feel good about myself today, <laughs> and I think I'm a pretty good person. Let's do this the whole thing. And then I'll say, well, you know, the Bible in the Ten Commandments sets forth uh, the standards for right and wrong, universal standards. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not lie. You know, there's typical things that all of humanity, you know, kind of agrees with that this is right and this is wrong. He says, so let's just see. He says, are you, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, what, what then does that make you? Well, it makes me a liar. Okay, question number two. Have you ever stolen anything? No. Anything? A pen from your teacher? You know? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you in a court of law? What is that? What makes me a thief? Okay, you're a lying thief. <laughs> Have you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, no. I got that one. I've never committed adultery. I got one good. She's like, okay. Well, Jesus said that if you look at a person with lust in your heart, that you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever lusted after another person? <laughs> The laughter comes out. Okay, so you're guilty. All right. You know, have you ever killed anybody? No, no, I've definitely never killed anybody. Well, Jesus said that if you're angry with somebody, that you've murdered them in your heart. Have you ever been angry with someone and wanted to kill them? Well, <laughs> right now there's a few that I can think of. And he says, okay, so by your own admission, you are a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer. Congratulations. That's the results of the good test in your life right now. So you're not a good person. And what Paul the Apostle has done right here is he has taken every Jewish person that has ever put their hope in their religious belief and knowledge and teaching of the law, and he has proven that they are guilty by asking them one question. Have you broken God's law? Now, Paul is going to testify when by the time we get into the later chapters of Romans that this is what got him because he was a Jew. And he thought that he was righteous because he was a Jew. And he would go through all Ten Commandments and he would check them off. He'd be like, yeah, never killed, never, never stole. I've honored my parents. I've never bowed down to an idol. He'd go through the whole thing. But he would get to number eight. And number eight is you shall not covet or lust. You shall not desire something that you don't have. 
And he said, I could never get past that because when you get to number eight, the law goes from the externals of what I do with my hands to the internals of what I'm doing in my heart because lust happens inside, not on the outside. And he said, I could never in good conscience say that I have kept that commandment. And he said, when I realized that, the law condemned me. That's what the law is designed to do. The law is designed to condemn you. And Paul says, O Jew that stand upon 13 pillars of confidence, have you kept the law that you so confidently affirm that you stand in? He says in verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. It's just as God said in the prophets would be, so it is. People look at your life and they blaspheme the name of God because they see that your behavior does not line up with your profession. And thus his name is blasphemed in it. He says for circumcision, verse 25. And circumcision is basically speaking of, of the, the Jewish custom of circumcision. It belonged to the Jews. He says for circumcision, verily prophets, if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, then your circumcision is made uncircumcision. It's null and void. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, that is the Gentile world, keeps the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? In other words, if circumcision is not simply the outward act of being circumcised, but rather it's the reflection of an inward change, then if a man who is outwardly uncircumcised keeps the law in his heart, then doesn't that count as being circumcised, since that's what circumcision represents? And shall not, verse 27, uncircumcision, the Gentile nations, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you who by the letter and by circumcision does transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. That is, I've simply been circumcised, and therefore I am right with God. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but notice this, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. In other words, what circumcision was designed to do and designed to be was not simply the identification of, yes, I'm a Jew because I've been circumcised, but rather circumcision was an outward act that symbolized an inward work. And true circumcision was not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. Now, circumcision as a ritual was given to Abraham as a symbol of the cutting away of the flesh. Now, I hope I don't have to go any further than that in what the, we all understand. We know what circumcision is, but it's, it symbolized the cutting away of the flesh, now, what we need to understand is that when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about more than just the physical, tangible substance of our bodies. The flesh is a part of our nature. Jesus would say, for out of the heart of man 
come forth adulteries, fornications, evil thoughts, covetousness, murder, you know, all these other things. Those are not tangible things. Those are invisible things, but they proceed out from in us. So when we talk about the flesh or the fleshly nature, we're talking about the sinfulness that exists inside of us. It's an invisible thing. And so circumcision of the heart means to have the fleshly things cut out of my life. I'm being cut off from the fleshly life and it no longer exists as a part of me. Now, concerning circumcision, there are four things that are absolutely essential. If I am to be circumcised, if I'm going to be spiritually circumcised, then first of all, I must be willing to part with the thing that is going to be cut off. Now, we think about that in the literal sense, and that just makes absolute sense. You know, if, if I'm going to let someone cut off a piece of me, right, before I'm going to let them cut that piece off, I have to be willing to be separated from that piece. Now, bring it right into the spiritual. Every single one of us in this room have a fleshly nature. Anybody want to argue with me on that? <laughs> because we can just start this study over, you know. <laughs> no, we all have a fleshly nature, and that manifests itself in different ways, right? Some people are given to power and greed. Some people are given to lust. Some people are given to uh, substance um, addictions and abuse. And, and that, I mean, we all have our Achilles heel. Every single one of us, not one of us doesn't have it, okay? And God wants to circumcise and cut that out of our life, he doesn't want to just isolate it and kind of keep it separate from the rest of us, but it's still there. He just wants to cut it off and he wants to get rid of it. But listen, before that can happen, there's an involvement in the will of the person who's being circumcised, meaning I have to be willing to have that part of my life cut out. And see, some people never make it any further than that. They say, dear God, please circumcise this flesh. Dear God, please get rid of it. Cut this out of my life. And God says, well, do you really want that out of your life? I want the shame of it out of my life. I want the consequences of it out of my life. I don't really want it to be wrong, you know, in my life. But I don't know if I really want that out of my life. Well, if I cut that out of your life, if I circumcise that part of your life and cut it off, then that means you're never going to experience the pleasure of that again. You can't even have the capacity to experience the pleasure of that again because it's not even in your life at all. Are you willing to have that done? And see, some people never make it any further than that because in our fleshly nature, we love our sin. Sometimes people ask the question and they say, why are there some sins that are so difficult to get past when others can be so easy? You want to know why? Because God is going to bring you to a place where you hate that sin so much that you would do anything to have it cut out of your life. That's why God lets us wrestle. Something. I remember, like, I was a sailor with my mouth before I got saved. I mean, I could put swear words together in poetry, you know, and, and to the marvel of an audience, you know. And when I was born again, it was an instantaneous thing that it became unnatural for, it just didn't come out anymore. It couldn't come out. I, I couldn't even do it. It was like there were seven gates before a word like that could even come, come out. It was so easy. Didn't have to try at all. And I thought, this is great. 
God, you're just so good. You take things out of the life, you know. There were other things that was a battle for years. Years. Lord, when, how, can? Why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard? And he brought me to the point where I hated that sin, those sins, so much that I'll do anything to get them out of my life. And when I come to God and say, God, will you cut that out of my life? And he says, are you willing to have that cut out? Oh, God, I am willing. Cut it out of my life. And I don't care if I ever can, can get near it again. Lord, get it out of my life. Ah, now we've come to the first place. You're willing to have this thing cut out of your life. And so circumcision cannot happen unless I'm first willing to be separated from the thing that I am asking God to, to come out of my life. Another thing concerning circumcision is that it cannot be performed by the man himself. In other words, you can't circumcise yourself. Now, you can in, in the physical, but in the spiritual, you cannot. It is up to God to do the circumcising. And here's what you need to know right now, is that when my will, an act of my mind, when my will is in harmony with God's will concerning something in my life that doesn't belong there. That's called repentance. God, I agree with you. This is wrong. This needs to go. This needs to get out of my life. I've repented, and now I bring that to God, my will, in harmony with his will. And what I've done is I've enabled him now to, to in the gracious way that he does, cut that part out of my life and remove that from my life. That's circumcision of the heart. It happens on the inside. My repentance is what opens the door for it. I can't take it out of my life, but I can bring my mind into agreement with God that what those things are that they need to go. And what Paul is saying is that what makes us God's people is not simply knowing that something is wrong or even having it in our life, but I don't practice that. Yeah, that sin lives in my house, but I, I sleep in a different room. <laughs> I just don't go there, and I haven't gone there for years, but that sin still. And there's a, I know what's behind that door, and it glows from underneath, and I, I want to. No, 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 no. That's not circumstance. It's when I say, God, get it out. And then I let him do it. And I can tell you, I've experienced that in my life. I've experienced the, 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 the way that God takes something completely out of the life that you thought could never be taken out of your life. You thought, okay, well, I can get away from this, but it's always going to be there. And, and God is bigger than that. He can take it out of the life uh, on things. And so he does. Repentance in the mind, circumcision in the heart. We'll stop there this morning. Um, Paul has made his case against the Jew. He's going to continue talking about them, and he's going to come to his final conclusion uh, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. But... The two things I want to leave with you this morning um, by way of application to us, because I know a lot of this doesn't apply to us, uh, because most of us here, we would say, yeah, I'm in Christ. I, I get all of this. But there, there are two things that, that, that absolutely very much do apply. Number one is this, is that sin in any life, including the Christian, the blood-bought child of God, sin is binding, progressive, and destructive. Meaning that if I allow besetting sin to take root within my life and I justify it in some way 
or I, I just excuse it or I say, well, God, I've, I've given 95% of what I am to you, but in this one area, Lord, I'm just going to hold on a little bit longer and, and just let this here. Listen, it is binding, meaning that it's not something that you, you're just going to be able to get out of your life on your own. It is progressive, meaning that it never stays at the level that it's at. It always goes deeper, becomes more pervasive. Its grip becomes greater. It holds stronger. And then it results in, number three, destruction. It will destroy your life. It's important that we understand that, that the will of God for us is not that we be like these monastic creatures that om you know, on, on some hill somewhere and that he just wants us to live this holy separate life. No, no, no. God wants to protect us from sin. And we must understand that if we allow it, it continues, it grows. The other thing this morning that I leave you with is this whole concept of circumcision, that it's in the heart and that the heart must be brought to God for circumcision. Lord, cut the flesh out of my life. Not outwardly. It's not profession. It's not knowledge. It's not teaching, being able to communicate it to others. Lord, cut it out that I might not live according to the flesh, but according to your spirit. And so uh, we'll move forward in Romans and we'll close Paul's case uh, next week. And then also next week, um, we'll see the solution to our guilt, which is why Paul is condemning us so heavily <laughs> in, in all of this. So um, that's it.